What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and excited to have on a very special guest today. But before we get in, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on this month. We are going to be talking all about student debt because we have received literally hundreds of questions, and I have been extremely busy answering not only those questions, but working with clients and all sorts of fun things. I haven't updated the blog at Financial Residency on some of the student debt pieces that are coming, which heads up, will be coming. So you want to check out the blog. We will be making changes. We'll be updating lots of stuff happening, but we want to answer all these questions. So this whole month of June is student debt month. We're going to be covering it all month on the Monday show. And I have got an amazing special guest, but before we jump in, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is advice media. It's not a secret that doctors have a hard time creating professional looking digital presence and having a dynamic website ranking in Google and growing your volume of patient reviews are not easy tasks. And honestly, you might be too busy to figure it out on your own. Now that's where Advice Media comes in. They've been around for about 20 years, and they work with physicians to create a more brandable online image, attract more patients, generate more calls and emails, enhance brand awareness, protect your online reputation, because that's definitely a big one, and more by contacting Advice Media today. Three in five will choose one provider or over another business because of a strong online presence. And if that's the case, what is your online presence saying about you? So don't delay getting an experienced team to help you improve your digital presence by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. That's drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. And like always, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to right now. All right, let's move in. Let's start it up. Let's get this month going with student debt. Joy, welcome onto the show. Excited to have you here. Hey, Ryan, it's great to be here. We've got lots of stuff going and I'm very excited, but I think let's start off easy. Let's break into this. This is like almost like talking tax, okay? Not everyone likes it. It's a very sore subject because a lot of them are feeling guilty that they have lots of debt. Our average client has about $300,000 of student loan debt. My wife had almost 200000 which we have thankfully been able to pay off. But I know not everyone is in that point. And there are some people that are just starting, whether it's just starting residency or now a brand new attending, and they're trying to figure out what they do with their student debt. So I'd like to start off the first Monday show of the month, all about student debt, talking about the new, like in-practice physician and what they can do with their returns. So if that was that person sitting across from me right now, how would you like to maybe start that conversation? Ryan, I totally feel you. And what we always start with is just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Or several. <laughs> totally. This is a huge problem. Physicians, we found sometimes haven't even talked to their loved ones, people that they love about student loans, just because you said they're feeling the stress about it. That's changing quite a bit. I think in the last couple of years, the newer residents and med grad students have really gotten a lot better advice along the way. And so I think they're feeling more solid about their student loan plans. But that's the first thing we always say is we're here with you, just like you do in your financial planning, Ryan. You take a really holistic perspective on people's financial well-being. And we do the same with student loans. In fact, before we go further, why don't you just give a one-minute bio of you? And I know we'll talk through a lot of this. It will be helpful for the audience to know that we've truly brought on another expert to talk and nerd out on student debt. And I think it would be great to start off there and then we'll dig in. All right. Sounds good. Well, it was about six years ago that I started this business, Navigate Student Loans. And since then, we've worked with thousands of physicians on their student debt. 
And the reason we do this is because we think that physicians are the cornerstone of our community's health and the student loan system is broken. And I, as a healthcare consumer, I'm complicit in this broken system. So a physician needs to be smart. I need them to help me fix my broken leg. <laughs> they need to go to medical school. In order to do that for 70 plus percentage of them, they have to take out these humongous student loans. And then they come out on the back end. These interest rates are humongous and they're stuck and they've got to figure out what to do. And they'll often tell us, what do they tell you about money? And they're thinking about student debt and finances. Well, usually it's being an ostrich, shoving the hand in the sand, I'll figure it out another day, which is what we're actively trying to stop here on the show and through our community. A lot of them are feeling anxiety. They're overwhelmed, guilty that they've taken out this. And I keep comparing it back to you bought a business, the business is in your head, and you need to do a lot of things to protect that business and be a good steward of that business. But you bought a business for probably one times earnings. And any deal out in the corporate world is a heck of a deal. So don't feel guilty or have anxiety. Just don't do the opposite and not feel anything and just say, I'll figure it out later. Because that will cause everything to kind of mushroom and snowball and compound and however you want to phrase it. So before they get to that point, let's interject here for a second and say, Joy, what do they do at the very beginning? They're a brand new resident. What are their next steps? Ryan, thanks for putting it in context that way. I really like that the business in their head. Yeah. First steps would be just to take a look at where they are, right? Uh, most folks, if they're coming out of medical school, had to do their exit interview. They had to usually choose a repayment plan. Now is the time to really think more about that. Some advisors recommend that everyone consolidate immediately out of medical school. We don't necessarily recommend that. We think given all the problems, the millions of mistakes that loan servicing companies are making that the fewer changes you make to your student loan plans, the better, because there's fewer opportunities then for mistakes to happen. But we would recommend sit down and figure out what is your best repayment strategy. And in order to know that, you have to have a sense of what's going to be happening with your career. Let's just start there, Ryan. So if you were sitting down to talk to someone, what would be some of the questions you'd ask? We'd be talking about what their long-term goals are and what type of physician they're going to become. And are they going to take on more training? We want to know length of your career. If you're just going to go, I pick on peds all the time. I know some people hate it, but you have to deal with hey, it. Hey, be careful now. Peds. Love peds. So my wife's peds subspecialty. So I feel like I've got a little tiny stake in the game that I can, if I pick on one of these specialties, I can. But if you're going to be a pediatrician and you know that you have three years of residency and that's it, and then you know for sure that you're going to go work for a uh, private practice because your mom or dad's a pediatrician, you're going public service loan forgiveness is probably not the best option. But if you said, oh no, I'm going to do like my wife and she did peds pulmonary. And so it was three years of residency and then three years of fellowship. There's a higher likelihood that you could actually go through PSLF because that's only 10 years. You got to start with what are you trying to do? If you're going into emergency medicine, statistically, like there's a very small percentage of EM docs that are actually employed by a 501c3. Probably don't want to have this giant plan for PSLF. So I always start with what you're doing, what are your goals, and what's your relationship around money? Like, how do you feel about debt? Are you debt immune? That's a bad thing, right? But that's kind of where I start. But if they are checking all these boxes in your head, so to speak, on, okay, well, it looks like they could go for PSLF or maybe not, but they need to get their employment certification forms. They need to get on an income-driven repayment. Like, how do they do some of those things? I think it'd be helpful for those that maybe haven't done it yet or did it and now forget how they did it? <laughs> well, exactly. And like, which website do you go to? And is it your loan servicing company or is it studentaid.gov? 
So yeah, great question. The go-to place is studentaid.gov. And especially right now with all the COVID changing, there are updates happening and there is a banner. We'll talk more about this, I'm sure. But there's a banner at the top of studentaid.gov that talks about what is currently happening for borrowers. Just click on the borrowers tag and it takes you right down to everything related to borrowers and the student loan emergency forbearance. And they're updating that regularly. And so just as a matter of course, if I were you, I would go in there and check it every once in a while to see if there's something new happening. But so, so studentaid.gov, go to manage loans. This is very specific. Go to apply for an income-driven repayment plan. So before you can do that, it's very easy. It just takes probably 15 minutes to complete that online form to get onto an income-driven repayment plan. But you really want to know which repayment plan is going to be the best one for me, right? earlier talked about emergency medicine. I think that's a great example. There are other physicians too, sometimes podiatry or others that know that they're in private practice, most likely even at the beginning of their training. For those folks, we often see it making sense to use revised pay as you earn. So Ryan, why would that be a good sort of temporary strategy for someone? Why is uh, revised pay as you earn? Well, you get the 50% subsidy of the interest, which is quite nice. I like not paying interest. I don't want to pay the government anything I don't have to pay them, right? Exactly. Exactly. Obviously within legal realm, I don't want to like get hit up for tax evasions. I pay a lot of taxes being in California, but I don't want to pay them more than I have to. Perfect. I believe you are an honest guy, Ryan. Totally. I know you're paying your taxes because you love libraries and highways. And police and firemen and everything else that goes along with it. <laughs> exactly. So with the revised page you earned, you have the interest subsidies. So let's say you've got $300,000 of medical education debt, your interest rate is somewhere between five and seven point something interest accruing. And so the amount that accrues every month at 300,000 is probably 1500 or 2000, right? Let's say your payment amount would be 200. So the federal government always applies your payment first to the interest. And then whatever's left, if you're on revised pay as you earn, whatever interest is left, they'll pay half of what's left. So in that example of $2,000 of interest accruing this month, you'd pay 200, so you'd have 1,800 left. The federal government would pay $900 for you on your student loans against the interest that is accrued. So definitely, if a person is uncertain about their future career choices, but they know that potentially, maybe they might use public service loan forgiveness, using revised pay as you earn as the best repayment plan during training, or during a period of transition can make a lot of sense. Now, it's important to note that in training, because there's no cap, so that could end up hurting attending physicians and maybe talk a little bit about why that might not be the best option for them if now they're finally making the salaries that they deserve. So we know that with some of the other repayment plans, IBR, pay as you earn, ICR, there is a payment cap. And that cap is the same as with the standard 10-year payment amount was on the original loan balance. And so for a $300,000 loan, that might be a $2,500 a month payment. And so let's say your income as an attending physician is as high that it would make your payment more than $2,500 a month. Using one of those pay-as-you-earn or IBR plans, your monthly payment amount would never be more than what the cap would be. So it's a really nice way to know what your payments are going to be and then to have a maximum payment amount. You lose that if you use a revised pay as you earn. One thing to watch for, and we've seen this, and I hope we're going to talk later, Ryan, at one of our other shows about problems with loan servicing companies. Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Well, that'll be our fourth show. So everyone listening, we're going to go through a whole bunch of 
errors and issues and mistakes we've seen physicians and servicers make. So that'll be a fun one. Can hardly wait. But yeah, that's a problem that we often see where, especially for attending physicians, and I think it's because loan servicers and the reps aren't used to seeing people with such high incomes. They might get bad advice saying, oh, you're no longer eligible for your repayment plan. And so I've got a horror story I'll tell you about if you remind me later yeah. what a physician did before they found it. We've probably had about 50 people be told that. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is how we're going to go about it. But on the other side, it comes to that 10-year cap. And so if your loan balance is really small, that's why sometimes it's not actually that good to go for PSLF, even if you're going to work for a 501c3, because you're now paying a much higher interest rate than if you were to refinance. But I digress. Exactly. Then there's how do you put a number on the hassle factor? Pursuing public service loan forgiveness has a huge hassle factor. These annual recertifications, your submission of your ECF, and then any mistakes and how long it takes to correct those. So that totally has to go in the formula. Yeah. Taylor and I, when we were looking at what we do with her loans, because we did something a little more unorthodox with hers. So she went to an in-state school. She's from Kansas. She actually lived at home, did medical school at KU. And so her balance wasn't actually that high. She did everything right. It was like $130,000. It was amazing. No, no, yeah. don't say that. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. Throwing eggs at you. I know. Her weighted average was about 7%. And so then she did residency for three years. And then we were about a year and a half into fellowship. And that had ballooned to almost $180,000. And she was really frustrated. I'm like, that's math, honey. You're making $200 payment a month. Like, you're not making that much Math is just going to keep accumulating. It's okay. It's not a big deal. And then she's like, look, I'm kind of burning out. I want to take a break and I don't want to go through. And granted the 120 payments or the 10 years, they don't have to be consecutive, but she knew that she was going to be at least out of the workforce for at least 12 months and likely not working at an institution. And so what we did is we took what was historic low rates. Now rates have even gone lower, but we ended up refinancing. And we ended up paying them off pretty aggressively and actually used real estate and helped us do that. But that was our decision because there was also the hassle factor. And for me, the hassle factor was a lot higher than her hassle factor because she was like, you'll just take care of it. I'm like, that's the problem, right? So my hassle factor was like $50,000. If we weren't going to accumulate more than like a 50K difference, which is about her interest, I was like, I'd rather just turn around and pay this off. We knew the loans. We took them out. We don't need the government to do this, but I understand not everyone is in that circumstance and we are fortunate. So, but that was my hassle factor because I knew everything would have fallen on me. Like I'll tell you, I got to go do taxes. She's just, oh, what do you have to do? I'm like, never mind. <laughs> never mind. It's okay. I'll take care of it. Oh, if only we all had someone like you in our house, Ryan. Yeah. I do all finance. She does all medicine. So that's our clean break. Perfect. Win-win. Yeah. But there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of hassle. There's a lot of phone calls. And so maybe talk through a little bit about what that paperwork would be for someone doing this the first time or maybe the first couple times. And so they're yeah. a little familiar what to expect. Yeah. So let's say you decide what your repayment plus repayment plan is going to be. Fill out the IDR application on studentaid.gov. They will use your most recent tax return as part of the electronic application. They'll use the IRS retrieval tool It'll go right over to grab your most recent AGI, adjusted gross income, from your most recent tax return. And a little tip here, it's the most recent that you've submitted within the last two years. Be aware of that. There are some you know, planning strategies you can use around that. A big tip, I think most residents already know that, or most folks in medical school know how important it is to file your taxes, even if you have zero income, 
during your last year of medical school because it'll just make your application for an income-driven repayment plan easier and you'll be able to have a $0 payment. That likely. used to be a rarity. <laughs> Clearly, it's not anymore. Well, into September, it'll come back to being a rarity. But still, if you're listening, file that. Make sure you get the $0 payments. Even though it's zero regardless for everyone right now, that will not be the case. And you're still going to benefit from those $0 payments. You know, we get so used to the reality, don't we? Of Oh, it's so nice to have no payments right now. Thanks, Ryan. We're going through right now. And everyone that we work with that has student debt, we're coming back and saying, hey, we've done some really good stuff. You've been saving that money, paying down debt, whatever it is. Be prepared that come October, you're likely going to be paying that loan again. Heads up. And anyone who calls on the Friday show, we're telling them too. heads up. You might not be budgeting for it. You need to budget for it. Trying to get it out there because it is going to be a rude awakening for some who aren't maybe as in touch with their finances. And we don't want anyone listening to have that issue. And so use the IRS retrieval tool to get your adjusted gross income and then just read all the small print and sign electronically. Your spouse will also have to sign because they need permission to use the joint tax return. And then you'll be done. And if it's just a simple IDR application, it's taking probably 10 days to process that. And then 10 days or so, you'll have a new income-driven repayment plan. It might take another month during normal times for you to get the first payment, maybe even two months, depending on when in the month that application falls. So yeah, it doesn't take long and you'll be set and ready to go. A lot of folks the first year have that six-month grace period, so really no payments until November or December. A lot of times we talk to attending physicians that are in their first attending job. And one of the questions we get is that, oh my, I make a lot more money should I tell Fed loans or whoever my loan servicer is that I'm making more money because I'm on an income-driven repayment plan? Ryan, how would you answer that question? Oh man, loaded question. I mean, the forms and everything states that when there's a change in income that you're supposed to inform them of any change, good or bad. Those forms have changed, Ryan. Ah. Talks about is if you had a decrease in income. Oh, it's time to update that blog, man. I know. Due to COVID, <laughs> all these things are changing. So many things moving so quickly. Yeah, totally. All right. Perfect. So the answer is, yeah, totally what you were going for. Excuse me for interrupting. You are required to recertify your income-driven repayment plan once a year. And that's what the requirement is. And you have the option to let them know at any time if you've had a change in income. And according to the most recent forms, if you've had a decrease in income. So that's been how I've understood the law to have been written and the intention of the legislation from the beginning. But there was some uncertainty related to, oh, does that mean an increase in income I need to report as well? But no, it doesn't. Only if you've had a decrease in income, because the whole reason to have these programs that were income driven was to make your payment affordable. And so if your income has gone down, then you might want to ask for a change in payment amount. Same place you go, studentaid.gov. All right. You recertify your income-driven repayment plan once a year. And if you're in an attending position with a new salary, no need to let them know that until you recertify on your usual annual recertification date. So if you're on an income-driven repayment plan pursuing public service loan forgiveness or not, every year you're required to tell the federal government how much money you're making so they can tell you how much you've got to pay them on your student loans. And during COVID, one of the things that has been paused in addition to payments and interest rates at zero is that all our recertifications have been suspended. So instead of having to recertify a year after you got onto your plan, you don't. And you actually have a 20-month extension on that recertification. So let's just walk it out for people. 
So let's say someone started their income driven repayment plan in December of 2019. You have to recertify these every year. So it would be due in December of 2020. We were in the middle of the COVID forbearance. And so recertifications were not required. Sadly, the student loan servicing companies still had their automated letters going out telling people to recertify. And so a lot of people did, but it was not required. And in fact, from the December 2020, with the 20 month extension, the new payment or the new recertification wouldn't be due until August of 2022. Imagine that, Ryan. Someone can be on that same repayment amount that they had actually in 2018, right? Because they probably used their 2018 taxes in 2019 when they recertified all the way through 2022. This can be great, especially for married couples that are trying to decide, do we file separately? Do we file jointly? Um, Because they can actually skip a whole year or so of questions about that. So does that occur if I was at July of 2020, I became a new attending, let's say. Now, do I have 20 months from that date or 20 months from December? All this stuff is so complex. It's all the little nitty gritty details. That's a great question. So when did you last recertify would be my question back to you. Oh, let's just say I recertified December of 19. Okay, December of 19. So then in December of 20, that would have been your date to recertify. Yeah. You have 20 months after December of 20. Because that was my date of recertification. Exactly. So a resident that now became an attending would have all that July to June of, let's say, or July to July, 2020 to 2021, and then would be able to go July of 2021 to 2022 and still not recertify. So their payments could literally show next to nothing. Right. It'd be that 300 bucks or whatever it is during residency. Yeah. It's spectacular. (laughs) That's an amazing benefit. As you read through all these little details and trying to understand the nuances and how this stuff works, it is ever changing. We had John McCarthy on from Physician Tax Advisors talking all about tax changes and we were going through all those. And it was like his scenario was, it's like building the plane midair. That's what they're doing. They're changing everything on the fly and you got to keep up with all the different moving pieces. And so I'm happy that we're talking about this stuff. It's good stuff. Good thing we're talking. Everyone can learn about it. Yeah. And if you are a person that already recertified, there are some things you can do. Probably too much for us to talk about on the podcast, but uh, reach out. We're happy to field questions about that and really take some number crunching, which is really important to do when you're thinking about these things. A lot of stuff is number crunching these days with the student debt. Unfortunately, it, it should be extremely simple, but nothing ever is. Nothing. Totally. Student debt is one of those. Not Nothing ever is easy. It is. They've got some options. They're going to fill out some paperwork. They're going to walk through it. And now they're potentially done and not having to recertify for quite some time. Is there anything else that they need to be aware of or think about with their student debt if this is a new resident or new attending and this is the first time to walk in through these pieces? Yeah. One of the things that I recommend, it's not written down anywhere, but just having made thousands of calls to Fed Loan Servicing to fix problems with people. I love it when people are on direct debit. So some people are scared about that. They're wanting to control their own payments, their own money. Other people are very much about set it and forget it. The reason I recommend people getting onto direct debit for the student loan payments is if there is a problem on the student loan servicer side and how they applied the dollars that you sent in and you run direct debit, they will credit that payment to you as a qualifying payment because obviously it was a problem on their end because something happened internally there. Alternatively, if you're making the payments yourself and there's a problem, really hard to go back and show that, yes, you did make that payment. And for some reason, it got misapplied among all your different loans. 
So yeah, that's one thing that I would recommend. Get on that direct debit. Knowing these servicers, I will tell you there's lots of problems on their end. And so if we can mitigate any issues, I tell people the same thing, direct debit for everything. Like you should have everything simple and automatic and be tracking it, but have things automated. I'd add in any interaction that you have with the servicer, I would document and I would keep really good records because I don't trust them to keep really good records. Maybe that's me being a weirdo, but seeing and hearing so many stories and cases, I'm like, no, I'm good. We're going to track everything. We're going to write everything down and we're going to follow through with whatever needs to happen, but I'm not taking them for their word for it. I'm going to document everything. Excellent. And one thing people find out pretty quickly is that the inbox in the Fed loans website that folks have, that does not archive. Nope. You would think it would, like we're all used to Google and Gmail, but no, 12 months and it's gone. And conveniently, they send all the important stuff there. <laughs> conveniently, don't they? Like, yeah. hey, how many payments do I have? Well, let me go check the inbox. Oh, wait, it's gone. Perfect. Huge problem. Huge problem. Yeah. So anything you get from them, save it to the cloud or print it and put it in a paper file. One of my favorite clients, he showed me his desktop on his laptop. And on the bottom right, it was all very tidy, nice and clean, nothing on it, except on the bottom right-hand corner, there's a file and it said P-S-L-F-S-H-Star-T. And that's where he was keeping all his stuff. So That's still sadly a friendly way of putting it too. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we round out the show, you know, it's been awesome having you here and I'm excited to have you here for the whole month. I think everyone's going to get a lot of benefit hearing from you. But for those that want to hear more from you, where can they find out more about you, learn about your guys' services and all the awesome stuff you guys are working on? Thanks, Ryan. We love helping folks and just coming alongside like a coach might do. And please reach out to us. We always do. We start with a free 15 minutes. Talk to the expert about what you're doing. A lot of folks like to do that with us just to make sure everything is good. And so please feel free to do that. Go to Ryan's website, financialresidency.com slash navigate, or go to our website, navigatestudentloans.com and contact us and just schedule that free 15-minute appointment. We'd love to talk to you, answer your questions, and give you the thumbs up if everything is golden. You also give the thumbs down if it's not golden and then can help everyone fix those things, which is nice. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. All right, everyone, moving over to our financial malpractice segment. I have John Apino on from Contract Diagnostics. He's about to drop some knowledge bombs on all of us with some horror stories in the contract space. John, welcome back on the show. Thank you for having me. Always good to be on. Uh, I'm going to keep having you back on. You keep giving us great stories. <laughs> all right. Mergers, acquisitions. We read about them all the time. The big hospital merges, a group gets bought. Most Often, physicians have no control over that, whether it's your multi-specialty group being bought by a larger hospital, whether it's one hospital acquiring another, or your small group of two being acquired by private equity or affiliate with another group. So there's little that you can do when that happens. And some of the times there are significant changes. My mother's clinic was actually bought, this is forever ago, but 32 years into practice and her clinic was bought and they said they were going to leave them alone and they did for two years. And then they kind of started poking and asking them to do things differently. But those first two years, really things weren't different. We helped a physician who went through his contract, he did some due diligence, asked the right questions. His contract had, I think, a 401k and a match and maybe a profit sharing or some other types of retirement vehicles that were in there. They had a you know, handful of weeks of PTO and you know, a certain compensation plan. And I think it was maybe after a few months were there, the group was acquired by another system or another hospital. And the company that had acquired them, there was a 120-day no-cause termination in their agreement. 
And so they basically terminated everybody with 120 days and then sent over their contracts. They look, we're not going to, nobody's going to lose their job. We are just changing from your current structure, your current contract into our new contract. And so they sent new contracts to all the doctors and they had different terms in them, but I think they kept them whole on their salaries, but the benefits dramatically changed. They dropped the 401k match. They dropped another plan for the retirement that the physicians had access to. So the retirement plan significantly changed, which of course their financial future changed. They changed how much vacation time they were going to have. So I think they were going to lose three days per year over the next three years. And I think their CME dollars went from 5000 to 2000 or something like that to save money. And you take one of those and it's not good, but neither maybe it's not a big deal, but you take all of them at the same time and it's a dramatic change, not knowing what else is going to change in the future. And of course, other other contract terms may or may not have changed. I don't recall. I just remember the benefit portion that changed. So you lost your pension plan, you lost a 401k match, those add up over time. And they just sent it to the physician saying, please return these by Friday. So we worked with one of the physicians that was many that was contacted and told to you know sign the new agreement. So he just pings me an email and I hop on the phone with him and we talk about it. I said, well, what are your colleagues thinking? And they said, I don't know. They're probably just going to sign it. And I said, well, maybe call them up and see if you guys can go in and have a conversation as a group. So instead of just, you know, one person signing and one person signing and one person asking for something different and another asking for something different, they came together and they said, hey, you know, we understand that there's been a merger. We understand that we don't have control over it, but here's what we would like to see in terms of changes. They weren't able to add a 401k match to their plan that they don't currently have. But I think they dropped the reduction in their vacation time. I think they changed a little bit on the CME. And to make up for the loss of the 401k match, I think they offered a cash payment. I forget what it was, 10,000 bucks or 12,500 or 20,000 bucks, whatever for everybody. And of course, over time, as you know, that's probably a net loss, but at least it was something that they got versus just accepting it. So we can't control mergers and acquisitions. And you know, we talked in other horror stories about what you can do to do better diligence up front. And depending on the size of the group, what you can ask them and what they'd be willing to do. But this is just a function of healthcare and it has been, and it will continue to be as it consolidates in the industry. But I think making sure if something does happen, you don't just say, oh, well, I'm just an employee here. I'll sign it and return it by Friday, like I'm told. I think it's getting good advice from somebody who knows and it's talking to your colleagues and it's approaching it in a congenial way where it's not me versus you, but it's just all of us working together to help out the community and the patients that we serve and everything else. I think having that discussion with the employer versus just accepting whatever they offer can be important. Yeah, I think being unified in that front and talking to your colleagues, because it's hard sometimes talking about money that might be more taboo. Some people might be very uncomfortable with that. But if it, you're all in the same boat, you're all getting renegotiated, it's way more powerful to be together coming in. And yeah, that 401k match in a one-time payment, yeah, that's good for one year, but that's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in the retirement plans that they're not going to have. So that does have profound impacts from a planning standpoint. Absolutely. But at least they got something. Yeah. Just didn't blindly just sign it. At least they got something. So fantastic story. Unfortunate for them. But I think a really good learning lesson for us in the community. Thank you so much for being on. If anyone needs contract advice and review, we love partnering with John and his firm at Contract Diagnostics. So check them out at financialresidency.com slash contract. All right. Well, those are always fun to do. And hopefully you guys learned a ton about student debt. If this is one of the first times you are navigating this experience and walking through it, 
And like Joy said, of course, if you have any questions or need any more assistance for one-on-one support, you can do that by checking her out at financialresidency.com slash navigate. All right. Before we finish out the show, remember today's sponsor is Advice Media. Don't forget to check them out if you're looking to improve your website or need strategic insight on what your current online presence is doing or not doing for you. So you can contact Advice Media by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. And I always put the link of the description in the show in the podcast player you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week and I will catch you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.